Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. I'd like to pose a theoretical question. Who was the true creative genius behind an American classic? Was it John Steinbeck, the author who wrote The Grapes of Wrath? Or was it Ed Ricketts, the marine biologist and philosopher who inspired him? It's a question with no obvious answer, and yet this much is undeniably true. Most works of art don't happen in a vacuum. This leads me to Daniel Weinschinker. Weinschinker set out to live his life as a poet, but then a funny thing happened. He realized his most important work might not come in the form of a poem. Instead, perhaps his greater gift would be helping others tell their stories. Weinschinker is a facilitator for Story Center, a nonprofit that promotes the creation and sharing of first-person digital stories. Weinschinker leans on his literary background and a deft touch with people to unlock the talents of would-be storytellers. Whether they be teachers or nurses, Weinschinker helps them find their story and tell it. The output of his process is a documentary film of sorts, only these films are far shorter and far more personal. Weinschenker joins me today from his home in Denver, Colorado. All right. Well, welcome, Dan. It's Daniel. 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 Welcome, Daniel. Uh, for those of you out there, uh, Daniel and I have known each other for quite a while. Um, and uh, I think he's got an interesting story to tell us today. So, Dan, uh, Daniel, long before the Story Center, you were a poet. And that's kind of a, an old school art medium. How did you go from there to getting into this more high-tech digital form of storytelling? Yeah, you know, so I, I can talk about how I ended up in, you know, going to graduate school for creative writing, which in itself is an interesting choice for someone who wants to write. It's definitely not a necessary thing for lots of people. Um, but I did end up there. And, and while I was there, I was teaching poetry and short fiction and I enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed it. I, I think you come up against something that, you know, it's a saying that, that people throw around, uh, those who cannot teach. Um, and I struggle with that. I struggle with the notion that I've devoted myself at least right now. And for the past 20 years to helping other people create and have spent far less time, on my own creations, unless you consider the act of helping other people with, with, with their narratives, um, part of your own artistic work. And I do consider facilitating or holding space an art form. So I, I think maybe I've just changed art forms. And so, uh, you know, I came out of graduate school and I've, <laughs> I could, I could have tried to make it as a poet. Um, instead I, I took a job, uh, copywriting for an internet company. And they were paying in those days in the late nineties, lots of money to people like me and other artists, graphic artists to come in and, and do this work, working on websites for, um, mostly big corporate agents, companies and entities. It wasn't for me. Um, but my boss was a poet, um, and a playwright and an artist. And he had heard about this workshop called the Digital Storytelling Workshop and this organization called the Center for Digital Storytelling. And they were 
they were at, they had a conference every year in Colorado, which is where I was working. And, you know, it just so happens that we had, you know, tons of money to hemorrhage out of this company before it uh, shut down like many other internet consultants, uh, consultancies of the time. And one thing that he thought would be a great idea and a good way to use our money is to help companies tell their stories better by going to the digital storytelling um, festival in Colorado one summer. And so he and I and another colleague all went and we loved it. After that, we went out and actually took a workshop from, from them out in Berkeley. And I, I mean, this is the kind of workshop where, you know, my, my facilitator, who is the founder of, um, of the organization was like, yeah, you come to my house and eat dinner. This isn't a, a corporate workshop. This is where we connect as people. And I just remember, I remember that. I remember working on my own story. I remember um, feeling comfortable in the medium and uncomfortable at times, but comfortable enough that I finished early and was able to help some other um, participants with theirs. And and I was curious about it and maybe good at it. And I just, and I basically decided at that time that I was going to quit my job at some point and start doing this. I'm curious, kind of zooming out a little bit, why do you think it's so important that we tell stories in modern society? Like what, what does that do for us as individuals and the world around us? Oh, that's something that I actually talk about a lot um, because I like to talk about like why we're asking people to do what we're asking people to do in the workshops. And that gets down to the heart of that question um, specifically, because we're not just asking people to come in and tell any story they want. Um, for example, we ask people to tell first person stories that feel true to them at the time. <laughs> we actually, most people in the organization, we just kind of say we, we, um, ask people to tell their non-fictional stories. Um, so they're true, but I've kind of amended that to saying stories that are true at the time. Um, because I, I feel that the stories that we tell often um, as humans actually aren't the stories that are true yet. Um, they're the stories that we want to be true. And that, that gets into answering your question. So what's the point of telling stories? I think that the answer for m most people, you know, when not thinking about it too much is that, well, um, stories can be used to entertain. We tell stories to, educate. I mean, you can imagine that maybe the first story that was told was by some cave person. Hey, don't eat that berry. My uncle Ugg ate that berry and he died. And so what you, so, so, so then you don't eat the berry. So stories as a form of warning. Um, and that's an interesting way to look at it. And that might be completely false in terms of the first story ever told. But I imagine that that was, that was somewhere um, along that timeline and maybe towards an early thing, which was um, stories to teach people, teach people how to you know, make food or how to light fire or what to stay away from, um, what's dangerous. And what's interesting about that is that you don't just give someone data you don't say very bad that the purpose for stories in that in that way is to wrap really important information in a context that's memorable because we as humans don't 
don't remember data on its own very well, but we do remember narrative. And so when you wrap data within a narrative, it makes it something that we can carry with us. Once you get beyond that, which is the idea that stories teach people or that we use stories as a way to teach people something that they can remember and carry with them is something that's completely opposite of that, um, which is something that uh, a, a guy that um, he's an author and, and thinker named Roger Shank. His idea is that we actually the stories that we tell are the ones that we don't understand. And the reason why we're telling them is because the interaction that we have with people once we tell them. And, and when I say other people, I also mean ourselves when we try and formulate a story out of our lived experience for ourselves and for others, we are trying to make meaning. And so the interaction between you and someone else, when you tell a story that you don't understand, that their reaction uh, is something that informs your story and changes it or your own reaction to say writing something down and then reading it out loud to yourself can be an incredibly impactful experience for you and changes the way you think about your own story or your own lived experience. So that idea, the way that he talks about, it, I think, um, if I remember correctly, is the idea that we have a playlist of stories that we tell all the time. And you might find yourself telling the same story again and again, or you might hear your partner or your friend telling the same story again and again. And then there's a certain point at which that story is no longer in your playlist. And the argument is that that story leaves your playlist. It's in your playlist because you don't understand it. There's something you need to learn from it. And you place it upon other people or yourself and that there's a response that you get. And that gets you to look at your story differently, um, have some other kind of insight. And so at that point, the story leaves your playlist and you may never tell it again. That's so interesting. The implication would be that once you actually understand your own story, then it would become boring to you and you just may not be compelled to tell it again. Yeah, boring might be one word for it or useful might be another word for it. But you've you've kind of ingested the use and you no longer need to process the story. You carry it with you just like you carry that the, the idea that that berry is poisonous or that berry tastes good. But you don't need to keep reminding yourself of that. That seems reflected in the stories I've seen on the Story Center website. It seems the typical story is somebody that is really wrestling with an event from their past. And I would imagine the process of telling the story is at minimum therapeutic and maybe even life-changing. I think we hear that a lot. We don't talk about our work as being therapeutic um, because we're, well, most of us are not um, mental health practitioners. Uh, and at the same time, we know that um, kind of any reflective practice is um, often therapeutic for people. Um, I now am a, you know, a mental health practitioner in, in having finished my social work degree. Um, because of the work that we do with communities, I wanted to go back and get more um, tools under my belt. Um, when working with the types of communities that we work with. And even when we're not working with a specific community that, that has experienced trauma, for example, it's, 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 um, it's mind blowing how often people when given a chance to tell any story from their life, go towards the most traumatic one. 
um, that this is a chance to tell that. And that speaks to a lot of things um, about how people feel or are or are not connected to themselves um, these days, why people go towards such heavy stories um, when when given an open space to tell like really any hopefully true story from their life. She was a 1988 Cutlass Sierra Oldsmobile. All I could afford. I named her Lucinda because that was an old lady name. And we were both old ladies in a way. At 22, I had a college degree, a well-paying agribusiness job, and a marriageable hometown boyfriend. But Lucinda surprised me. Her engine was a V6, and her trunk held more suitcases than you'd think, and her rough fuzz seat smelled like fuel, and before I knew it, she was hijacking me off. So these are multi-day workshops, and I'm curious, within the scope of a workshop, I would imagine the kind of end product is the story. So there's the construction of the story, but then there has to be the emotional readiness. Um, you, you describe yourself as a listener. What do you do to help people get in the right place emotionally to tell the story, you know, irrespective of the tools and the techniques and the construction? Uh, well, that's a good question. And just to kind of say a little bit, yes, traditionally we were doing multi-day work almost always. And now, uh, you know, when COVID started, we started just this open space for people to come in for like an hour and process some story that they were living, uh, online. Um, it is profound what, um, what happens in an hour, even when giving people a space, you know, we send out work beforehand before our workshops um, a text letting people know what often happens in a workshop and to allow for um, their own creative process to emerge um, and that that takes a different shape for different people it can be very frustrating for people it can go from frustrating to you know celebratory <laughs> and and people have different roads uh, that they take in their creative process um, and to get to know themselves and to allow for that creative process to kind of come out um, but we do send out information we do ask people to watch some stories and and i i am of two minds about that um i think it, I try and be really mindful of the stories that I choose um, to show to people because we often show stories that we are impacted by on some level. And so we're all automatically putting out some kind of um, some some kind of uh, judgment as to what's good or worth um, sharing and what's not. Uh, and, and I really do want to allow people to go towards any story that's calling to them. I mean, we get a lot of feedback from people that the stories, I think, like you said, are, um, they're heavy, you know, people go towards something that, you know, that is life changing and, and while comedy, uh, can be life changing, um, it's hard comedy is hard and maybe that's why people don't make as many funny stories in the workshop because it's harder I think than drama um, and so people often do go towards drama and I you know I really have tested out a bunch of different approaches with this as to what um, how to you know how to get a wider range of stories how do I get more stories that involve other emotions like anger as opposed to just um, the kind of sadness or struggle 
and then kind of redemption stories if there's redemption at the end of struggle. One of the biggest moments of learning for me as to like how I needed to change as a facilitator was um, like 10 years ago, maybe 15, a long time ago, <laughs> I was in South Africa working with um, uh, working on a project around gender violence and HIV. Um, I remember coming home and, you know, I, uh, someone contacted me and they're like, oh, I saw this new project that Story Center did. Um, I watched a couple of the stories. You totally facilitated that, didn't you? And I was at first felt like super proud. And I was like, yeah, why were the stories good? Quote unquote good. And they were like, yeah, that ending line, that was such a Daniel Weinschenker line. And I was like, oh shit. Because at that point it wasn't my, it wasn't their story. It was mine. And I remember even working with that individual and kind of helping to guide him through how to end his story. And I remember saying like, oh, you know, you could try a line like this or like this. And he heard me say it, you know, and you just start recognizing the dynamics of power that then go into um, your roles as facilitator and student or participant um, or teacher. And that maybe he took that line because... I said it and I'm supposed to be the holder of knowledge and the smart person. It, maybe it was a cultural thing. I was the white Westerner. Maybe it was because I was the teacher and he was the student, so to speak. Um, but in that moment, I realized that I was not serving the people that I was, tr I was hoping to serve. So before we go too much further, it might be useful for the audience, maybe describe what a a typical story is like in terms of length, um, subject matter. Maybe is there one you could use to kind of explain like what these stories actually look like? Yeah. So I don't know. We've helped people make probably 50,000 of these over the past 25 years. The stories are often end up being stories that are around three minutes long of spoken, um, voiceover. It, it starts often either as writing or that someone just begins talking in one of our workshops and we have spaces we create space um, where people in a group um, can share their ideas and those ideas might have come from uh, writing that they did before the workshop um, it might have come from just a collection of photographs they have or a sound that they recorded and they're then talking about what the sound is or why they recorded it or you know, things like that. But more often than not, it is a piece of writing. Someone has done some journaling before the workshop, then they read it, or they simply just talk through what their ideas are. Um, and that ends up becoming a written script most of the time. Um, and then we help people record their voice reading that uh, script. They then take that voiceover file and teach them how to use video editing software and talk to them about the use of imagery and the other uses of sound, um, whether it's music or um, other, uh, you know, sound effects or the sound of crickets or wind or footsteps or whatever it is that they're the emergency room, the ventilator, uh, et cetera, that might add to their narrative. So tell me about these people, where do they come from and how do they wind up on your doorstep? 
So there are two basic ways that people end up kind of coming to us or reasons why they come, I guess. Um, you know, we do public work and we do custom work. Um, and what I mean by that is we have uh, workshops where anyone in the world can sign up and come and for any reason they want, tell a story, um, in, you know, in that process. That said, we have, you know, very few rules. And one of the rules is we want it to be first person and that the, the I voice is present. It's a story that requires you to tell it. And another rule is that we hope that it's true. Um, we want it to be true or, like I said before, that at least you think it's true at the time. Often people will make a story, and this is what I mean about, you know, telling stories that you don't know. I think certainly a lot of people get to know themselves or their stories or the characters in their story, whether it's a story about them and their father or them and their um, dog or them, you know, it's usually you and other. So other could be place, other could be an event, other could be another character, but your relationship to you and other um, is, is often something that's uh, central in these stories. Um, so people come and tell a story that involves those elements. Oh, I was going to say one other thing about that, which is that Yes, I think people learn often a lot about themselves in that process or about the other in their the other character, again, whether it's another uh, human being or animal or place or time um, or event. They learn a lot. And I've also had people come back 10 years later, or one year later and say and I say, oh, what was it like to like, uh, you know, watch your story again if you watched it again after some time? And they're like, yeah, you know, that line at the end where I said, uh, yeah. And in that moment, I understood what my father was doing when he put his arm around me for the first time in 25 years. You know, they'll say, yeah, I thought I understood my father, but I don't know what I was thinking. I totally didn't get my father. It, you know, I, I actually understand him in a very different way now. And sometimes they'll even say, I played that story for him and his response actually changed the way that I thought about the story that I just told. So even though, so I think um, stories change all the time. We tell the story again and again and again, and it changes every time we tell it because we're different every time we tell it. And our audience and how they respond is different every time we tell it and how we tell it to different audiences also is different. You know, the way you say something to a child might be different than the way you say something to a stranger on the bus. To get back to your question, how do people come to us? They either come to tell any story that they want in one of our public workshops where anyone can show up and tell a story that kind of at least conforms to those two rules or um, guidelines. Or um, what's, what we mostly do is that um, we partner with other organizations for a very specific purpose to help a community of people tell stories that um, center around a theme. So if we're working with survivors of rape and sexual assault, um, we might be asking them to talk about that. You know, we could be working with a group of refugees, could be working with um, a group of, of teachers who actually want to bring this work into the classroom. And so um, it's not always necessarily survivors of trauma, but you can talk about teachers all being survivors of some kind of trauma as well. They often laugh about that. So anyone can come. And then there are also very specific reasons why we would work with a specific community or group um, to help them. Uh, it's often groups whose voices have been marginalized. And some people use the term uh, to give voice to. I don't like using that term. Um, 
it implies that uh, they didn't have a voice until we as facilitators have, you know, come into that, uh, to, into their community. And, and you know, I, I, I don't I don't like what that implies. Uh, the idea of that they already have a voice and we help them um, help them um, learn some tools to take that voice and um, and use it in a way that maybe they haven't used it before. You know, it's it's amazing that video editing software has been available on personal computers and now phones, um, you know, for free, basically, you know, for 30 years. And yet very few people actually have um, made the types of, uh, you know, movies or documentaries or pieces um, that we get people to tell. Often they'll put together some pictures uh, put a song underneath or something like that, a slideshow. Um, but to reflect on lived experience is something that people on their own often don't do unless they're being led um, or given a space to do exactly that. What are some of the situations you find yourself into when you have to like really help get somebody unlocked? I would imagine in a group setting, somebody might just get a little tight, a little uncertain how to like tell their story in front of a group. How do you... How do you work with them to like unlock the story within? Certainly, you know, we get people, I, I think sometimes the prep work um, helps pe helps to unlock people. It gives them a chance to go and process on their own. Um, we, you know, there are writing prompts that we give people that for some people are really helpful to write to a prompt because the idea of just a completely blank sheet of paper, so to speak, blank canvas is just simply too terrifying to fill in. Um, and then, you know, there are people that love that, um, that they, that love starting that way. Um, so I think there are different ways, uh, you know, the group, you said they, there might be people who are nervous, um, telling a story in front of a group. And I think you're right. Um, but what I've seen more than that, I mean, and one of the tenets of the work that we do is we, you know, almost always, unless there's some reason why, for some reason we can't with a certain community, we do our work in group, in community. People are telling stories within a group, not just, we don't usually do one-on-one -on -one solo work with someone. Uh, so group is very important. I actually think it's, uh, it's, it goes towards what I was talking about before that we often need an audience to get to a deeper understanding of our story. One, because it's their feedback, their questions, the way that they react to our story that leads us into a greater understanding of our own story. Um, so I think that, you know, yes, me as a facilitator, I do have very specific feedback or insight into people's stories because I'm, I'm so immersed in this form. So when thinking about it going into this form, okay, well, that's going to be a great story for a novel, but how does it, how does it work in this workshop for what we're asking you to um, create? I may have more information about that and experience because it's what I do all day long. Other people maybe have never done something like this and don't understand the ways in which I'm trying to get people to think about their story. You know, yes, I have certain feedback, but I do think that the feedback of the group, the response of the group is what um, actually opens people up. There are things that we do as facilitators to understand who we have in the room, who's um, maybe more likely to be nervous um, sharing a story to the group and who might um, not be. Um, and so sometimes we'll arrange for a certain person to go first when we're asking people to share their stories, sometimes we leave it up to 
self-selection. Does anybody want to go first to start sharing what it is they're doing or thinking about? Um, but often it's very calculated in some ways to have someone go first that um, they might open, you know, someone who's not not timid and um, who feels okay sharing, sharing the, you know, their vulnerable self. Um, and that I think helps to open people up any more than anything I could say or do. Giving people space is a craft. Um, and so I've learned a lot about what to pay attention to in people, how they hold themselves, how they even introduce themselves. When I do like an icebreaker, how do they respond to that? Um, you start learning a lot about how people feel about their own stories and about how they feel in group. Even if you're asking someone to say, hey, you know, tell us something about your name, which is a pretty common like little icebreaker when we're just all introducing each other. But I, in essence, when I ask people to tell to tell me about their name, I'm seeing how close are they, how, how much do they know um, and, and how articulate are they about um, the stories that they hold? Because there's a million stories even in, in answering that question. Where did it come from? Who are you named after? Have you liked your name? Has your name changed? If it changed, why um, did you change it back? Uh, do you love it or hate it and why? Um, there's so many ways of um, answering that question, stories within um, that come out of that, that I really pay attention to how people answer something like that. And then that gives me information as to who they might be um, showing up in the rest of the workshop, how they might show up in the rest of the workshop. What's next for you in terms of your own kind of creative journey? Um, I know you to be an immensely talented creative writer, and I'm sure this has sharpened you this experience. I believe you've been there for 16, 17 years. What's, what's next for you in terms of like what you've learned from being in this role with these people and these amazingly lush stories, where do you take it as an artist? That's a good question. As an artist, I don't know. Um, you know, I know that I need to work on my own, on creating my own narratives that are separate from the narrative of me helping other people with their narratives. So, uh, and and that's a kind of a constant refrain for me is um, getting back to my own work, you know, uh, and that work can be kind of anything. It can be cooking. It can be, you know, without a recipe maybe, um, which is like without a writing prompt, so to speak. Uh, or it could be, you know, that I play in a couple bands and I'm really bad. Like I'm horrible and it's okay to be horrible. And that's what I, you know, that's also something that we cover in, in the workshop is that often people have never made movies before. And so the idea of being beginners together in group, the idea of stumbling together into this, uh, space and through this space, uh, is a, can be a beautiful, frustrating and beautiful thing. Uh, and and it is for me too. So entering into that space of being of being comfortable or comfortable enough to be uncomfortable, comfortable enough to be a beginner again in whatever it is I'm choosing to do. Playing in a band right now is one of them. Uh, I'm just I'm 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 a beginner, uh, and I'm trying to be okay being a beginner. Um, you know, and I did go back to school to study social work because I wanted to try and. Um, you know, it was a way of creating different kinds of workshops that maybe focus a little more on the therapeutic um, aspects of the work um, and being able to support people in the therapeutic um, intervention sounds like, again, too technical of a word, but the um, therapeutic opportunity um, for 
for people to do very specific work around uh, stories of trauma and, and where they feel more supported in those um, in those spaces than what I was how I was able to support people before. Um, so th- that feels like me to be a creative space also. Well, Dan, I, I know you've got to go possibly to help somebody tell their story in a mere four minutes. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to really kind of dig into this very cool organization with these very cool outcomes. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me because again, you know, some of these stories, like I talked about before, you know, like when people ask me about my work are stories that are in my playlist, but you also asked me a question about a story um, that isn't in my playlist, which is, you know, or that I'm in, I'm, I'm in the middle of like trying to figure it out. It's now going to be in my playlist of, of how I answer that question, how I think about the movements around systemic racism and interpersonal racism are um, how they converge maybe and how they're changing the way I think about the work that I do. Well, I know you well enough to know that you'll be laying in bed, staring at the ceiling in the dark, thinking about that because that's the way your mind works. But uh, again, Dan, thank you so much. Best of luck going forward. And uh, I'll be talking to you soon. Happy stories. Thanks again to Daniel Weinschenker or just Dan Weinschenker. You can call him either one. You can also learn more about his work at storycenter.org. That story about the old cutlass with the smelly seats, it's called Lucinda. And it was written by Elise Marsh. It's a great example of the kinds of stories that come out of Story Center. You can watch Lucinda in full, along with many other stories, at storycenter.org. Join me next time when I talk to Jeremy Workman, a filmmaker who chronicled one man's quest to walk every street in New York City, all 9,000 miles. See you then. I'm gonna take this little house and make a home. And I'll never have to face my nights alone Cause in my heart I hear Spain And on my face I feel you breathe Next to me Two by land, by air, by sea And that is how it's supposed to be Now, and that much I can say Nah.